looking around at our world, it can be so easy to wonder if Jesus really cares about us. It may sometimes seem like he's left us alone, or like he's asleep on the job. There's just too much suffering or violence or hatred out there. Maybe Jesus has decided to just stay in heaven now. Let the world tear itself apart. We may sometimes feel like the disciples in the storm-tossed boat. Don't you care if we drown? Now, we believe that God has not left us alone, of course. That his Holy Spirit is with us. But it can still feel like this at times. It can feel like he's abandoned us. It's easy to get discouraged, feeling ignored or neglected by God. It's easy to doubt whether or not he truly loves us. It's kind of like we are engaged lovers who have been separated from each other before the wedding. There was this huge demonstration of love on the cross as Jesus died, somewhat like a a marriage proposal when someone gets down on one knee. But it's like our fiancé put a ring on our finger and then promptly left town, indefinitely. So we're left wondering, where are they? Do they really love me? Are they really going to marry me and follow through? Or are they bailing now? Like this, we wonder sometimes about God's love for us. Maybe we doubt, we worry, fear, or even despair. The passage I want to open up with you today, I believe, puts those fears to rest. It means to encourage us with God's deep, covenantal, even marital love for us. And with our indescribable privilege to belong to him. It also means to draw our attention to the future when Christ will indeed return for us. So please go ahead and turn to Revelation 19 with me in your Bibles or on your phones. Open up to Revelation 19. Again, we have turned a corner in Revelation from a bunch of God's judgments being poured out to much more positive passages, focusing on the glorious outcome for our world. A couple weeks ago, when we started chapter 19, God had just caused the fall of Babylon, the earthly powers that stand in rebellion to the Lord, they're destroyed, which causes heaven to then erupt in praise. I'll read it again from verse 1 at the beginning of 19. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. The gist of the story here is that God has won a war, and this is the celebration. 
And if we want any semblance of a bright future ourselves and for our world, we better hope that God wins like this. And the good news is we believe he will. And so we too can praise God. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Today's passage continues this celebratory mood. It actually seems to continue the same scene. Even the theme of heaven praising God remains the same. But the focus of the praise, the focus of the passage, shifts here from those who are judged to those who are redeemed. From what God will do to his enemies to what God will do for his children. We can approach, or we should approach this passage with excitement and some enthusiasm because if we are God's people, if we are Jesus' people, this describes what is going to happen to us one day. And what we see is that a wedding is, in fact, coming. In the words of Jack Sparrow, Captain Jack Sparrow, wedding? I love weddings. (laughs) In John 6, or sorry, in verse 6, John sees, or more so, he hears the great multitude of heaven cry out again. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Now, in verse 1, he just said it sounded like a really loud voice. Now he adds the imagery of what it seems to sound like. Like the roar of many waters. Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. If you've ever stood on the shore of a raging river, or even rafted its rapids, you'll know how noisy water can be. It can be a roar. Same thing with an ocean shore, or a waterfall. Many waters can be deafening. John's trying to describe this roar of voices. Like, it it seemed to sound like this. Or maybe it's more like mighty peals of thunder. Crashing, rolling, booming, like a thunderstorm is right overhead. Actually, John says it sounds like both of these things combined here. It's loud. One scholar says, its incredible volume is in keeping with the stupendous message it provides. Look at the message the voice gives. What seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah again. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Like I said, the main point of this passage is basically the same as the last one, praising the Lord. Heaven's praise of God, and we are heaven's people. But now the focus is on what God's victory means for us. And so our first major point today is this, that we should praise the Lord for his reign over us. Praise the Lord that he reigns as king over us. Even now this is true, but it will be true in a far greater way One day, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Even the words that are used sound powerful. 
and it's easy to rush over them. Hallelujah, or praise Yahweh, the name of God's people's personal God, covenantal God. Why? For the Lord, that's his title, shows his authority. The Lord our God. God is his position as creator and ruler of everything. But he's not just any God or an impersonal, distant God. He's our God. The Lord our God, the Almighty. There's no other being in the universe who's almighty. The Almighty literally means the one who holds all things in his control. What's being stressed here is God's omnipotence, his sovereignty. He is over, above, and in control of all things. And he's our God. And why praise him? Because he reigns. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He's the king, our king. What does it mean that God is our king? The most obvious implication of that is that he's in charge. He's the boss. He's not just some symbolic figurehead like many royals today. He rules. And though he reigns over everything, he specifically reigns over us as his subjects. Which means that we as his people... We must neither ignore nor disobey what he commands as our king. Second, if God is our king, he's not only in charge, but it also implies he cares. He cares. He's not an aloof king sequestered off in a palace somewhere. This is a king who is intricately involved in the affairs of his kingdom. As is sung in 1 Chronicles 16. It says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord reigns, and obviously very actively. He establishes the world. He comes to judge the earth. He is good. He's steadfastly loving forever. A question, would a king who's already died for his kingdom, we believe still lives, would a king like that leave it to rot forever? No, he will return. He will come to judge the earth, to save his people, to reclaim the earth. As Danny Aiken sums up, this is an omnipotent all-powerful God who is inaugurating his universal, visible, and permanent reign over all things. What is a reality in heaven is now about to become a reality on earth. The prayer of Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, has been granted. 
You think you'll be excited on that day? I know I will be. May we worship him now as our reigning, returning king. Heaven's courts, which they see things so much clearer than we do. They see God and his goodness so much fuller than we do. They can't help but praise his name. He's in charge and he cares. Even about you. About me. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. John records the song continuing. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Now that's very personal. Like these realities will heavily impact us on a personal level. We will rejoice in this. We will exalt or revel in this. And we will be moved to give all the glory back to God for this. For what? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Here's the big idea we're going to see in these verses. To praise the Lord for his marriage to us. Now, to praise the Lord for his coming marriage to us. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. You can't read that and think God is a killjoy. He wants his people to be joyful and happy. It's not selfish or self-centered to enjoy that which God has designed us to enjoy. And the greatest thing he wants us to enjoy is himself. Here we are rejoicing in our coming marriage to him. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Let us rejoice and exult, or rejoice and be glad. Now, how many times do you suppose those familiar words appear in the New Testament? The answer is only twice. The only other time they appear is in Jesus' Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, it makes sense that this would resurface here, as Daryl Johnson explains, let us rejoice and be glad, because the vindication of Jesus' disciples is taking place. They're receiving their reward. Are you anticipating this day? Are you looking forward to it? Expectation? So, this should compel us to worship our God now with joy and passion. As Bob Coughlin says, endurance is one thing, expectation is another. It's possible to sing through dark seasons, discouraging outcomes, heart-wrenching losses, relentless opposition, and dwindling resources with grit, resolve, and stoicism. But that doesn't describe the songs of heaven. Not even close. They're marked by joy. Joy. 
And that joy stems from a confident expectation that God will accomplish everything he has promised. The final songs of Revelation describe God overcoming all evil, the nations bowing down in worship, and the bride of Christ finally beholding her groom, King Jesus, at a never-ending royal celebration of grace. Will our earthly songs look and sound exactly like the songs of heaven? No. But can the songs of heaven motivate us to sing with greater passion, understanding, confidence, and anticipation now? Absolutely. Let's focus in on the marriage itself for a bit, as that's the particular reason for praise here. Let's rejoice and exalt and give him the glory For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. The image of God's people being his bride is quite common in Scripture. The prophets especially use the metaphor to describe God's love for his people, as well as his people's unfaithfulness or infidelity to him. They were a wayward bride. But Isaiah 54 or 54.5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. A few chapters later, with language reminiscent of Revelation 19, it says, we read this this morning actually, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all also use this picture of God's people being his bride. No matter how unfaithful they become, he remains faithful to his covenant. And then we come to the New Testament. And Jesus gives us a number of parables which compare God's kingdom's coming to a wedding feast. In fact, in Mark 2, Jesus speaks of himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist also calls him that. And then Paul picks up the imagery and says that he's working to present believers as a pure virgin to one husband, Christ. And then in the most well-known passage, Ephesians 5, Paul talks about marriage and says that our human marriages are really meant to point us to a greater marriage, the marriage of Christ to the church. He says that Christ actually gave himself up for her. He died for his bride. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And Paul even says that the original marriage of man and woman back in Genesis 2 was in some mysterious way pointing ahead to Christ and the church. And now, the picture is being brought full circle from Genesis to Revelation. Now, before anyone, especially the guys, are weirded out by this picture... Don't worry, this does not mean that individually and singularly you'll be married to Christ. Now this is, it means that we corporately, as his church, will be married to him. Nothing weird's going to go down. This is, 
an image of how much he loves us. How much he loves us. That that he would commit himself. Scratch that. That he would covenant himself to us for all eternity. And before that, that he would die for us to beautify us. To make us his bride. Jesus is still called the lamb. Here, it's marriage of the lamb. He was the sacrificial lamb who died in our place. Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as the ultimate and perfect husband. For we who, are so, who so often doubt how much God cares for us, this image really should shatter our doubts. And no matter how unclean we are or unworthy of his love, he wants us to be his bride. He really, really, really loves us more tenderly and affectionately than we know. Yes, we are God's creatures, his servants, his subjects, his friends, and his children, but something even deeper is communicated in us being his beloved wife. Like, I love my friends. I love my extended family. I love my kids dearly. But I love my wife more than I love any of them. And maybe today, you just need to hear that we as Christ's people are not forgotten by him. We are beloved by him. We are his betrothed. And one day we'll be his bride. See Christ dying and rising again. And don't just see a a Savior ransoming servants for himself. See a husband lovingly rescuing his wife, even though we were a wayward wife. He wants to forgive us. He wants to cleanse us and make us his own forever. Won't you accept his love today? He's offering it to you. Almost as if he's down on one knee. You say yes to his love. He's already given himself for us. I pray you commit your heart's devotion and affection to him today. And that, I believe, actually ensures that your future will be part of this coming glorious day. You'll sing along. But notice, our future wedding isn't about us. It's all about the Lamb. In modern Western weddings, who's at the center of a wedding day? The bride, right? Whose opinion matters most? The bride. Whenever I do wedding rehearsals, I don't leave unless the bride says she's happy with it. <laughs> Lance Witt describes our customary practice as well. It says, The bride wears the long flowing dress. 
She enters to a bridal march. She parades down the center aisle with the pomp and circumstance reserved for kings. And people stand as she enters. It's clearly all about the bride. The lowly groom, on the other hand, is an afterthought. He's filler, the warm-up act for the main attraction. Unlike the bride, he usually enters from a side door. He wears a tux that some other groom will be wearing next weekend. And for him, there's no grand march. He often enters to what strikingly resembles elevator music. (laughs) The book of Revelation describes the mother of all wedding scenes. But here it is the groom who gets all the attention. The spotlight is fixed firmly on the groom, Jesus. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It's the marriage of the Lamb, not the marriage of the bride. It's the Lamb's marriage more than anything. His day, his celebration. Yes, it says the bride is part of the picture. She's made herself ready. But notice, she's already his bride. And that is at the groom's choice. He chose his bride. He chose us in his grace. In our human marriages, things are different. Like, there's a certain level of accomplishment involved. Let me explain. I, I tell my wife often, I can't believe that I got a girl like you to fall for a guy like me. And notice, even if I feel undeserving, I feel like I did something to win her love. Right? There was something about me that made me lovely in her sight. Not so here. We didn't attract God to us with our good looks, our loyalty, our wealth, our passion, our common interests, our romantic efforts, our, our killer personalities, all the things that attract humans from one to another. If anything, we were ugly, disloyal, poor, apathetic, disinterested, and unloving. No, he's the beautiful one who woos us, who attracts us to himself. And we can do nothing to earn his love. Nothing but accept his proposal. Now, heaven does declare here that the bride makes herself ready or prepares herself. And with images of hair and makeup and clothes flashing through our minds, you may wonder, well, what does the bride do to prepare herself here? How do we ready ourselves or prepare ourselves for a marriage to Jesus? And I think the rest of the book of Revelation provides the answer here. We as God's people, the the bride of Christ, prepare ourselves by remaining faithful to him, not compromising ourselves with Babylon's idolatry or immorality. We prepare ourselves by enduring hardship and persecution, whatever comes our way. We prepare ourselves by maintaining our testimony for Jesus and by taking the gospel to all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. 
We prepare ourselves by trusting our sovereign God through it all. And maybe more than anything, we prepare ourselves for the love of the bridegroom by loving him in return, even now, by giving him our heart's affection and devotion and worship. Verse 8 beautifully describes both sides of God's grace and our effort here. Look what it says. It says, It was granted her, it was granted the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, on the one hand, God grants our clothing to us and the right to dress as his bride. And on the other hand, we clothe ourselves with the righteous deeds we do. God prepares us and we prepare ourselves. Which is it? Both, of course. We see this tension throughout the Bible. Consider Philippians 2, for example, which says to to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like us preparing ourselves. But it also says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's preparing us. The righteous deeds that the saints do here, which adorn our beauty as Christ's bride, are the deeds that automatically flow from a true faith in Christ. We don't save ourselves. And God actually grants or gives us our wedding gown in the first place. It's not a contradiction. One flows from the other. Christ offers beautiful dress to us. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That symbolizes both purity and victory. And then we then make ourselves ready by pulling on the clothes Jesus provides. This is grace. that we get to play a part and love him in return. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So concludes the majestic song of heaven. And what a song it is. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Praise the Lord for his marriage to us. Right now it's like we're engaged to him. It means we are called to be faithful to him right now. Are you? Or are we flirting with other lovers who appear beautiful right now? We don't live for ourselves anymore. We've been bought by his blood. Well, the calling is high there. And so is the eternal covenantal love of God. Being engaged to the Lamb means that we're very secure in his love. We belong to him as his beloved Let's be ready for him. Look how John continues in verse 9. It says, And the angel said to me, and this is likely the same angel that proclaimed Babylon's final doom in chapter 18, but this angel's tone has changed drastically too as the scene has shifted from judgment to salvation. Look what he says. The angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In other words, God says this, so it is totally trustworthy. Take it to the bank. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, there's a still a focus on a wedding here, but the metaphor has changed. Did you see that? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He doesn't say blessed is the bride. He says blessed are the wedding guests. So who are the invited guests? Angels? Animals? Some other group of people? It's actually still us. This is a mixed metaphor, which is totally normal in this kind of writing, in the apocalyptic genre. Grant Osborne says that this stresses that, again, God is in control. He not only gives the wedding garment to the bride, but calls those he wishes to the wedding supper. I still remember the very first wedding invitation I personally received from friends of mine. So not an invitation that my parents got and their family to tag along with them, but one that I received in the mail addressed to Mr. Matthew Rudd. Felt so honored to be invited based on my personal relationship to them. They recognized that I cared about them and they cared enough to include me. Now, I know that novelty wears off and you're, if you're in a season where you're receiving a dozen invites a year. But really, it shouldn't. Like, it's always an honor that someone values your presence enough to write your name on a guest list for their big day. Now, try, just try to wrap your head around this. You're invited to Jesus' wedding. Like, imagine if you were personally invited by name to a royal wedding over in London. Whether or not you would drop everything to get on an airplane, you would feel insanely honored and privileged. Let me say it again. You're invited by name, to the wedding of Jesus Christ. Not only the wedding of the year, or the century, or the millennium, the wedding of all time. The wedding that all other weddings point to. And it's going to be a party that goes on and on and on. It's called the Marriage Supper Here, that's not just some dinner reception. That's a banquet that goes on for days, really forever. Put on by heaven with foods that we can't fathom in God's very presence. We don't get invited because we've earned it by being such good friends. It's His grace. Have you accepted the invitation? You RSVP'd. Do that by calling on the name of Jesus. Graham Goldsworthy comments, So we have two metaphors which point to the reality of the kingdom. First, the marriage of God and his people. Secondly, the fellowship of the marriage supper, which expresses the unity of God and his people in the kingdom, as it also celebrates the joy of the kingdom. 
But here the guests are surely not different from the bride mentioned two verses earlier. So the people of God are both bride and guests. All this means is that either image alone does not suffice to describe the relationship of the Christian to his Lord. He is at one and the same time beloved covenant partner and honored guest at the celebration. Truly blessed are those who are invited. This is an incredible, unspeakable privilege. And in a world of turmoil and trouble, loneliness, this should lift our eyes. Turn our eyes to Jesus. This is coming. True blessedness. Nothing in this world could compare to this. Or as the Bible says elsewhere, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love him? We long for our bridegroom's return. Let's revel in the blessing of his invitation today. Praise God for it. Well, the scene ends in verse 10. As John responds to the angel before him, this breathtaking creature, in the wrong way. He does. Then I fell, John speaking, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We may wonder why John would ever do something as dumb as this. But there are enough warnings against worshiping angels in Scripture to tell us that this is a natural inclination for us in the face of such beauty and power. Like, angels are not the wimpy-looking beings on the front of Christmas cards. If you saw one in its glory, you too would be tempted to fall on your face before it. The angel, on the other hand, has the correct response. And it doesn't matter how amazing or awesome you are, if you're not God and someone tries to worship you, you should stop them. I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Side note, what does this tell you then when Jesus doesn't do this when people worship him? He lets them worship him, accepts their worship, because he as God the Son is just as worthy of our praise. But anyway, the, the big idea here is the same as it has been throughout. Worship God. As John Piper puts it, worship is what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all God's judgments, all God's dealings with the world, all God's plans for history from beginning to end have this one goal. Worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. And don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. Amen. And this final part of the scene adds one final reason why I believe we should praise him. So we praise the Lord for his work through us. 
Praise the Lord for the way that he is working through us even now. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we get another picture, yet another picture of who we are as God's people here. We're not just his bride. We're not just wedding guests. We're also his servants. And yet, this still is an exalted picture. Like, we are on the same level as glorious angels. And given what we just read about being the bride, we serve out of love for our groom rather than out of duty. What a privilege it is to truly to, to serve the Lord. I challenge you to ask yourself, are you, am I serving him? Is serving the Lord a defining mark of your relationship to him? If not, why not? Also notice, as his servants, we are called to, to hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's what, we, that's what servants do. They hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's to, to hold tightly to the gospel message and never compromise on it, but also to hold to our testimony about Jesus, how he saves us. No matter what opposition may arise against us, we must not lose the testimony of Jesus. But the final comment that John makes there might not make much sense to us, where he said, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Out of all the options that have been suggested for interpreting this verse, and there's a lot of them, I personally take the word spirit as meaning heart or essence. And therefore, it would mean something like uh, testifying about Jesus is the heart or essence of prophecy. Or as Danny Aiken puts it, the true spirit of prophecy always bears witness to Jesus. The true spirit of prophecy always points to Jesus. But let's not miss the broader emphasis here, just because one phrase might be confusing. The angel's telling John, we're fellow servants of God. We're holding to the testimony of Jesus right now. We're serving him. Keep testifying about Jesus. Keep bearing witness. If you want to prophesy, John, and John wanted to prophesy, keep pointing to Jesus. See, it's still all about the groom. It's all, it's the lamb that'll get all the glory. But right now we have the inestimable honor to be part of his cosmic movement. We get to both treasure and spread the gospel. To to point to Jesus every day. To give him credit for what's happening in our lives. To show others how Beautiful he's become to us. To get him enthroned on every heart possible now before every knee has to bow. Praise God that that we don't deserve this privilege. He has granted it to us. So we praise the Lord for his reign over us, his marriage to us, and his work through us. Your life 
is no longer about you. My life is no longer about me. It's all about him. Pray with me. Father, we are sorry for the many ways that we have often made life about ourselves. We've pointed to ourselves, praised ourselves. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts today? Show us yourself in your beauty, majesty. Reveal yourself to us. Help our lives to never be the same. For you are so good. You are our king. You are our bridegroom. You are our Lord. We praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.